Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. So uh, I came to talk about the king this morning. I hope you came to hear about the king. Somebody say amen. amen. So we start our new series. I don't know if you have it, Ray, the image uh, for our series. We're going to be going through Matthew, and we're going to be spending a long time looking through Matthew. Uh, the image that came up on Facebook, the image that hopefully we have here, it says the cross and the crown. We're talking about the King of Kings. We're talking about Jesus, and it's about uh, the cross that we know that he's going to be going to, but it's also about the crown that he, that he bears and that he wears. He's the King of Kings. You know, we, we sang a song this morning. I don't want to put you on the spot, Ray, but can you put up the, the second song we sang, and it says, I'll set you as a seal. So we're not too familiar with some of this stuff. Maybe some of our younger students are, but there's a, there's a seal that bears the mark of the king, right? So if a king writes a letter, you've seen it in movies where they'll have that wax and then he has his seal that you can tell this is the actual king. Whatever's in this envelope, it was confirmed and signed and sealed by the king. You can take it to the bank. It has authority that comes with it. So as we were worshiping and we, and we sing this song where we say, I'll set you as a seal upon my heart. It's like the handprint or the, the, the king's seal upon your heart saying, I belong to Jesus. I, I recognize that he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There's no other authority greater than him. I've set his seal upon my heart. So as we, as we go through Matthew, I hope that you recognize that we're talking about royalty. We're talking about a king. We're talking about authority. We're talking about something that matters more than anything else matters in this life. It matters in this world. We're not just having uh, a series. We're not just having a Bible study. I believe that it's about the king, like it says, it's about the crown, or the cross, excuse me, like it says, but ultimately I believe that it's about the kingdom. When we studied Matthew as a Bible study, we saw the kingdom, the kingdom. And I believe that it's, uh, it's exactly where we should be. We've been talking a lot lately about, uh, we haven't really been able to escape this idea or the imagery of heaven touching earth. Lately, we just keep talking about it as heaven touching earth and, and the regular world we live in, plus the kingdom of God and it coming down. And you as a Christian, if you believe in Christ this morning, you are the go-between. You are the conduit. You are what makes that connection between what's heavenly and what's earthly this morning. And I hope you take that, uh, that serious, those two realities. Heaven is real. Earth is real. You as a Christian, you are that go-between between the two realms. 
So as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we believe that it was written around 50 AD, within 20 years or so after uh, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, right? So we get this Gospel uh, of Matthew. Uh, Matthew and John in our four Gospels, they were eyewitnesses, they were disciples, they were apostles, they were walking with Jesus. When you look at Mark and Luke, they were contemporaries of the disciples and apostles, so they lived at the same time, they talked to them, they walked with them, but they weren't disciples and apostles of Christ. So they're hearing it kind of secondhand or being in that particular area when God was doing all these things. So when we, when we pick up after 400 years of silence, we're in the Gospel of Matthew and they're writing these things down. Before that, they're just testifying. Carmelo got up here and he testified about what happened last night in our meeting and what he's about to do. And, and uh, Steve gets up here and testifies about what happened on Tuesday night with the men when we got together. Now, can you imagine? You just hear Steve's testimony, but if you weren't there, that doesn't make, maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. And you don't know exactly what happened when the men got together. You don't know that a, that a car was driving down uh, Lambert and the police were behind them and the driver jumped out of the car and started running down the street. The truck went up the curb and two ladies got guns drawn on them and they had to back out of the car and be put on the floor while we're sitting in Farmer Boys. You didn't hear any of that. All you heard was Steve say, right, that we get together and it's good for the men and you're going to bear fruit. So can you see how all these things in, in, in these verbal testimonies that are going forth, right? So when these disciples and the apostles are talking in the community about, let me tell you about Jesus, there's a lot missing, right? We don't hear everything that happened. God just specifically gives us enough to say, this is what I, what I need you to know. This is what I need you to understand. So the, the, the apostles, they began to say this, I'm sure of it. They said, listen, we got to start writing this stuff down. These testimonies that are going forward and these stories that we're telling, we need to really lay out the whole story in a little bit better context and a little bit better picture so that we don't forget and people don't forget what Jesus did and what God is still doing. And they began to lay out these, these stories for us to be able to read, for us to be able to look back on when we weren't there 2,000 years ago and see a little bit better picture of the whole story. So Matthew, as we get into it, Matthew is written to the Jews, right? So it's going to have a lot of uh, history in it. It's going to have a lot of um, uh, scripture in it, an Old Testament scripture. These people, uh, they knew the Old Testament. So as he's writing, he's thinking about, about who's going to be reading his, his, uh, his testimony. Just like when you're writing to somebody, when you're texting somebody, when you're writing a letter to a loved one, you're not only thinking about what you want to say, but you're thinking about the person you're writing to and who's going to be reading it and how they're going to take certain things, right? Many of us who have, have used writing to maybe uh, deal with conflict, I like to write. So like sometimes if I talk to somebody, I know it's not going to come out right. And I know I'm going to get frustrated and they're going to get frustrated. So I like to write. And if you do that sometimes, what you'll find is you'll be erasing stuff. Not because you didn't mean what you wrote, but because you know how they're going to take it. So think about that as he writes this gospel. He's like, I know who I'm writing to and I know how they think. And I know how they're going to take these things, but I also know what God is doing and what he's done, and I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So the first thing, that's as much of an introduction as I can give you because I, I want to get into this chapter. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. The first thing I want to look at as we begin this journey together through Matthew is the man himself, right, that this gospel bears his name. I want to look at Matthew. And point number one this morning is guilty by association. Many of you have heard me say that before, uh, guilty by association. Who is Matthew? 
In the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 27, it, it, we get this introduction to Matthew. It says, <clears throat> speaking of Jesus, it says, After these things, this is Luke 5, 27, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Everybody say Levi. Levi. Say Levi. Levi. Oh, come on now. Say Levi. Levi. All right. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed Jesus. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sometimes when we think about the Bible days, we picture people walking around like half naked with just this like robe over them and there's not a real society. It's a real society. They have a tax office like H&R Block down the street. <laughs> They have communities, they have houses, they have everything that you see in our community. These people are developed. It's not an underdeveloped culture or, or group of people, right? They have a real society. Matthew's a tax collector. That's the equivalent of what you might be able to recognize, a Jew who's helping the Nazis locate Jews who are hiding during the Holocaust. Think about that. So you've got these Jews and they're hiding out because all their people are being taken and imprisoned and put in gas chambers. And imagine a Jew walking around and saying to, to uh, the Nazis, hey, there's, there's some in that house over there. Hey, hey, Nazis, if you go into that house over there, they're hiding underneath in the basement. That's what it would be like to be a tax collector in, in Jesus' day. Imagine a slave, the United States. Africans being brought over here as slaves, and some of them are escaping. Now imagine another slave coming and saying, I know where the runaway slaves are hiding. Let me take you to find them. Imagine right now something we have going on in the United States where uh, people of Mexican descent are being deported if they're not legally here and taken from their kids. Now imagine a group of Mexicans running around saying, hey, I know where some of these people are hiding. Let's take them away from their kids and their families. Let's, let's, let's deport them. That's what it's like to be a tax collector in Jesus' day. They're hired by the Romans. They're employed by the Romans. They're wealthy, and they tell them, hey, you guys are going to be the ones to go to all your own people, take all their resources, and give them to us. And anything extra you get, you get to keep. These people are hated in the community. And what happens? Jesus comes and says, Levi, I want to hang with you. I want to hang with you, and not only you, get all the tax collectors. Get all the people that the community hates, all the Jews hate, and they have reason for hating. And not only do I want to hang with you, I want to go to your house, I want to eat, I want to share stories with each other. Jesus is not afraid of being guilty by association. What do we see here? When you look at Levi, when you look at he becomes Matthew, we see forgiveness, we see transformation. We see Jesus turning everything upside down in this one man's life, in this community of tax collectors. The same way that the gospel is going to declare to us that God does this on a worldwide scale. Before we even get into his gospel, we see him doing something with Levi, who's Matthew, that should give us a foreshadowing of what he's doing in your life and what he's doing on the whole planet. He's not afraid to be a king who's guilty by association. 
So Matthew's gospel, when you open it up and you say, somebody says, hey, turn to Matthew, we're going to take our tithe and offering. Turn to Matthew, we're going to start our series today. Opening up to Matthew for, for a Jew during this time would be like me coming in today and saying, hey, I've got a book for you. And, and the author is Donald Trump. And the title of the book is, Why I Gave Away All My Riches and I moved to Mexico and I decided to start tearing down walls all over the world wherever I found them and how I got the Republican Party to follow me. That's the kind of story you're reading when you open up Matthew. Something that sounds crazy. Something that says this person's life had to be touched by God. This person's life had to be changed and transformed and it's something you would never expect to hear. I don't want you just to go through this study and go through this book as if it's uh, not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's the world being turned upside down and lives being changed and transformed. Does it make sense? If it does, say amen. amen. That's the story we're reading. Pick it up. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. This is a study you need a Bible for. Open up your Bibles this morning. Open up your Bibles this morning. Is that a Bible you got there, young man? Notebook, open up a Bible somehow, some way. We need the Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Abinadab and Abinadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed and Ruth by Ruth, excuse me, Obed begot uh, Salmon by Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abihud. Abihud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eliezer, and Eliezer begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David into the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Stop there, verse 17. That's a lot of names. Somebody say amen. amen. I understand that it's a lot of names, but it's important. This is the lineage of the king, the savior of the world, the one to sit on King David's throne. We look at, uh, what are their names? Harry and, what's the other one's name? Prince, Prince William. William. Uh. You guys don't know anybody in Jesus' lineage, but you know Princess Diana's boys. <laughs> Right? But it matters. Who are they? Who are their parents? How are they in the line to become the next king or queen of England? Right? We look at these names and they may not matter much to us, but when you're a people who are waiting for a king and he has to come in a particular line, it matters who their daddy was and it matters who their mama was. You don't get to just become king because you want to. Nobody will ever sit on the, on, the, on the throne in England that is not born into the bloodline that Diana was born into. 
that Elizabeth was born into before her. These things are passed down by law and by blood. It's the same thing when we look at these scriptures. Like I said, we look at them as these old people who are backwards. They were writing down the lineage all this time, and they know where the Messiah is supposed to come from. So why is it important? Why do I say guilty by association? When you hear all those names, most of them don't make a lot of sense to us and they don't really matter to us, but there's a few people in there that you would want to know about. The first one is in uh, verse 3. It says, Judah begot Perez by Tamar. Judah begot Perez by Tamar. So in Genesis, I'm not going to take you there, but in Genesis chapter 38 is where you read this story. If you decide you're taking notes and you really want to learn some of these things, go back and read Genesis chapter 38. But Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. He's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that Jesus later on is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the Judah that we're talking about. This man, this boy, right? It says that his oldest son marries Tamar in Genesis chapter 38, and he dies. So the culture is that his next born in line, his second oldest son, has to marry her, and he marries her. And he doesn't want to have a child with her. So he does some things that he shouldn't do, read it for yourself, and he dies. So then Judah's like, listen, everybody, that, all of my boys that marry this girl, they die. He promises her, listen, when my youngest is old enough, he'll marry you. But he's lying. He says, I'm not going to give her, I'm not going to give her my boy. Not my last born. So the story goes on that as he gets old enough and he hasn't given her to Tamar, Tamar figures it out and he says, you know what? If that's how you're going to be, I got something for you, Judah. She takes off her, her widow clothes. You know, in, in my wife's culture, still, if, if your husband passed away, you have to wear black for the rest of your life showing everybody that you're a widow and you're not going to remarry. So Tamar is, is dressed like that in her widow's clothes after losing two husbands and waiting for her third to come along. She takes that off, right? And Judah's wife dies. So Judah's broken up. He's torn up. He goes on this journey. She hides on the side of the road and pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. Has this baby, and his name is Perez. So when we go through Matthew and it says that Judah begot Perez by Tamar, that is one of the most horrific stories that you could read about in the whole Bible. But you know what? Jesus is not afraid to be guilty by association. That's the bloodline of the Savior of the world. But it's a crazy story. God's in the business of redeeming sinful and fallen men and women. He's not afraid to show us that in his word. If we'll read it, if we'll, if we'll study, if we'll go back, if we'll look. And why does that matter? Because your family's jacked up too. And my family's jacked up too. And we don't want, I won't even say we don't want. Thank God we don't have a God that wants to cover that stuff up or who will disqualify us if we come from backgrounds like that. Not only does he not cover it up and not disqualify us, he says, I'll come that way. I'll set up a kingdom with that kind of bloodline and that kind of lineage. There's some people who have no shame in their game, and that's not what I'm talking about. 
You know how some people, they like the filth and they like the dirt and they're ready to tell anybody at any moment, that's who I am and that's who I've always been and that's who we are and if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. I'm not talking about no shame in your game. What I'm talking about is not being ashamed about who you are and where you come from, not because you should be proud of it, but because Jesus is not ashamed of who you are and where you've come from. He came and got me just like he came and got you from whatever families we belong to and whatever histories they are. And he says, I'm not afraid to be associated with these people. In verse 5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Many of us know this story. If you go back and read Joshua chapter 2, uh, Rahab is a prostitute again living on the, on the wall, living down on Hollywood Boulevard. She's a prostitute, and the men that would come into the city, she'd be the first to meet them. These spies come into the city, and even the, the, the authorities within Jericho, they say, if there's spies here, I know they're somewhere around Rahab, and they go and they question her. But Rahab, she has this, this fear of their God, and she says, listen, I'm going to deny the, the rulership and authorities here. I'm going to protect these people. I'm going to uh, hide them. And then what ends up happening? She gets saved. Her family gets saved. She gets saved. She gets delivered from Jericho. But it's not just a salvation and a deliverance from Jericho. She gets to be in the bloodline of Jesus Christ as well. God is not afraid about being guilty by association with people like this. Yet we spend so much of our time trying to hide who we are or who we used to be. When we should be focusing on the king that came that's not afraid to be associated with us. What I love about this story is I see the complete changing of a person that's come to God, right? Rahab walked out of Jericho as a prostitute, but she walked into Israel as royalty. She was a prostitute looked at terribly and deserved to be looked at that way. These walls come crashing down in Jericho. That's who she was. And then the very next day, she steps out of Jericho and all of a sudden she's royalty. She's part of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. She's a queen. Is that how you feel? Your relationship with God has been? You walked out of whoever you used to be and that very day you became royalty? I wish more people could see that Christianity is not about pretending to be something that we're not. It's not about pretending that our past doesn't exist. It's about really being born again. I think that's how a lot of people, that's how I used to look at Christians. And I know a lot of people look at us now that way. When we start talking about this stuff and they say, why are you pretending like you're not who you are? We all know you and we know what you used to do and who you used to be. Stop pretending like you're something you're not. I'm not pretending that I'm something I'm not. I'm not that anymore. I'm something new. I've been born again. That's the story of the gospel in Matthew. That's what you see in Rahab. That's what you see in that lineage. She's not pretending that just because all the records were destroyed, right? All the records in, in, in Jericho were destroyed so she can come out and be like, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I come from a great family and we've been holy and righteous. No, she's not pretending She's saying, not only was that stuff physically destroyed, it was spiritually destroyed when I encountered the living God. I've been born again. If you've been born again, spiritually, that happens immediately when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. But we're also promised that one day, physically, we will be born again, and there'll be that renewal as well. Romans 8.23 says, We also who have the first fruits of the Spirit... 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. That's what it's talking about, like with Rahab, with me. I don't know if it's the same with you, is that I got saved and spiritually I was born again. I knew I was new. I knew that Rahab in me was gone and the Jesus royal blood was now in me and that was going to be my new life. But this physical body still sucks sometimes. I still look like Rahab to other people. <laughs> I still sound like Rahab sometimes to other people. People still are associating me with the Rahab that I used to be. So I'm eagerly waiting. God, I want a new body too. I want a new destiny. Yes. So what happens after Rahab? All this in the bloodline of, of our God. Rahab has a son named Boaz and he marries Ruth. She's a Moabite widow. She's following her widow mother-in-law named Naomi. And she says, Naomi, whatever your God is, that's going to be my God. I'm leaving everything behind. I'm following you. I'm in love with you. I didn't just love your son. I love your whole family, and I love you, and your God is now my God. Read that story. <clears throat> this is how she comes into the bloodline of Jesus in verse 5. And this, uh, this woman, uh, Ruth, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Imagine King David running around the house as a little baby and his great-grandma is a Moabite. Moabites, Amorites, Canaanites, the worst of the worst in that, in that day and age. Godless. Unholy. And here she is, great-grandmother of King David. See, I think God is always up to something. I hope you guys know that God is up to something in your family. I hope you feel like God is up to something in your family. I hope you're writing down things that God is doing, just like Matthew's writing down these things. What is God doing in your family? Is he up to something? Is he changing something? Is he transforming something? Is he making people new? I don't know about you, but my personal family story sounds a lot more like one of these people than <laughs> Princess Diana and Harry and Henry or whoever they are. We come from a jacked up past. We got murderers in our family. We got addicts in our family. We got adulterers in our family. We got homosexuality in our family. We got thieves in our family. We got liars in our family. And a lot of those things were in me personally, active before I came to know the Lord. But I don't have to be ashamed because Jesus ain't ashamed. Wouldn't it be crazy if Jesus came and he said, hey, <laughs> I'd love to do something for you, but I can't really be associated with that. I'm hoping we get a good picture of our king. David has this son, Solomon. He's the richest and the wisest. He's, he's everything that, uh, that you would want your son to be or your daughter to be. And, and uh, in this lineage, when it refers to him, it calls his mother the one who had been the wife of Uriah. It doesn't even give her the honor of, of saying her name. And if you read 2 Samuel 11, we see why, because it's Bathsheba. She was a married woman. She got involved in adultery with David. I was thinking about it as, as preparing to preach this. And, you know, in those times, things were different. Maybe she didn't have a whole lot of say in it. You know, the king rolls up on you. It's not like you can be like, no. <laughs> the king sent a servant to get her off of her rooftop. Maybe she shouldn't have been bathing on the top of the roof. Who knows? But <laughs> this is what it says about her, you know, uh, David has this son, and he's Solomon, and he's amazing. And his mother was, you know, that one that used to be married to Uriah. 
Is she an adulteress? Is she seductive? They lost one of their children. Is she cursed? No, she's in the bloodline of Jesus. <laughs> she's changed and transformed. And she takes, she takes the consequence maybe of her sin, and she takes who she may have been or who she allowed herself to be, uh, be because of that relationship with David, and it doesn't stop there. There's change and transformation, and she has this new son that's going to build a temple for God. We're all fallen and need to be redeemed. These stories and this lineage that we get here this morning, I think God is really trying to show us something about, about who he is and the type of king that he's going to be uh, when he comes into the world. A lot of us think that we need to be worthy of God, but it's actually our unworthiness and our unholiness that initially connects us with him. Right? A lot of us think now, like, am I worthy to be used? Like, I've done enough to where God can bless me now and God can do... No, it's actually... The opposite when we read the scriptures, it's those who are unworthy and those who are dirty and those who are prostitutes and those who are liars and those who are adulterers that God says, listen, I'm not afraid to associate with you, but I'm going to come and change and transform your life. Jesus is humble. I put in my notes that he associates with the scoundrels and the rats instead of the aristocrats. In your life, are there people in your life that like, you might even like them, but you don't want anybody to know that you associate with them because they bring your stock down? Or are you not ashamed to say, hey, that's my people, that's my friend, that's my girl, that's my dude, that's, that's, that's who I am. That's those, I associate with those people. Or do we only want to be associated with people that kind of, again, they raise our stock. Oh, you hang out with them? Oh, they like you? Jesus wasn't like that. Amen. Jesus could have came in any family he wanted, right? Why do you choose these people? Jesus is God. He could have been eating every day in the palaces. He could have been at Herod's. And he's being born in a manger. Guilty by association. First thing we see about the king and the kingdom is that it's marked by humility and association with guilty people and huge risk. That's what your faith is, uh, is built on, the kingdom that, we, uh, that we're a part of and the king that we serve. So number one is guilty by association. Number two is the making of a holy family or making a family holy, however you want to look at it. Matthew uh, chapter 1 goes on in verse 18. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public spectacle, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph's fiance comes up pregnant. It says he didn't want to make a public spectacle of her. What he could have done is brought her before the whole community and say, look, this isn't something I've done. This is something she's done. And the whole community would have stoned her to death and praised God for judging her for what she had done. I thought it was interesting that Joseph is called the son of David here by the angel in verse 20. And I felt like God was saying to Joseph, act like royalty. Think about that for a second. Joseph, son of David, 
son of the king, King David, the one that we all look to and celebrate. You are in his lineage. Act like royalty. Don't act like an idiot. Don't act like somebody that doesn't come from a good line. Don't act like somebody that doesn't, hasn't been taught how to deal with certain things. Act like royalty. Royalty doesn't deal with the issues of their lives in public or in the media. Think about that for a second. Every time you see those people I just mentioned, Diana's boys, they're not talking about scandal and drama. All they're talking about is good stuff. How they're taking care of their wives, how they're raising up their kids, right? What they're wearing to wherever it is that they're going. They don't deal with their drama. You think they don't have drama? Of course they do, but royalty doesn't deal with that stuff in the public. And they don't deal with it in the media. Amen. They go to the elders and they ask them, how, have, how has our family dealt with these type of situations in the past? Picture that. Picture Harry. What's the other one's name? I'm going to keep asking you guys. William. William. Picture Harry and William when they're going through something. They don't get on Twitter and on Facebook and on YouTube and put that out there. What do they do? I'm sure that they go to their grandmother. I'm sure that they go to other royals and they say, listen, I'm kind of going through something. How has our family dealt with this in the past? Most of us are so quick to put our business out there for the world to see that it's crazy when we go through stuff. I'm not trying to tell you to keep the truth a secret. I'm talking about talking to the right people and for the right reasons. We had this engaged marriages event a couple weeks ago and we talked about some pretty significant and personal things but we talked about it in small groups of trusted friends that all love Jesus. We didn't talk about it on Facebook. We didn't talk about it with every family member that wanted to know what was going on. Joseph is a royal. He's a son of David. And what does he do? He gets advice from the most royal of royals, the king sends a servant in the form of an angel and says, hey, talk to one of my royals, talk to my son Joseph about how to deal with a situation like that. We gotta give God time to reveal and to remove that initial emotional reaction that rules over so many of us. We've all been through things. Not, maybe it's just me, but my emotions can get the best of me, right? So when something happens to us, usually those emotions begin to rule over us and we start saying stuff and doing stuff and posting stuff. And God's saying, listen, you need to give yourself time for me to speak to you. Don't be ruled by your emotions. Don't be ruled by your feelings. Don't start doing things and saying things that you're not going to be able to fix. God says, Joseph, I know you're hot. I know you're angry. I know you think that she's a harlot. I know you think that she cheated on you. And I know that you want to post it. I know you want to talk bad about her. I know you want to tell her family what she's up to. But just give me a minute to talk to you about how to deal with this situation, Joseph. It looks like scandal and disgrace, but it's really not. This is God making a family holy. Think about that for a second. How many times has God been trying to make your family holy and you just lost your mind and gone off sideways? And he's like, listen, I'm trying to make you holy. This is the making of a holy family. And that's the example we have when Jesus comes. God didn't make them holy by, by just saying they've been holy and the line has been perfect. No, it's a jacked up lineage. 
It's a family in turmoil, but this is how I'm going to make them holy. I wonder if we would be willing to let God make our, our families holy within the church. Let God make your family and my family holy within a life group, within a Bible study, within a smaller community, within the community of believers. I wonder if we would have the patience to let him do it like he did with Joseph and Mary here. So Jesus has this lineage that we read in verse 1 through 17 that's just like, ugh, ugh. But it'd be one thing to say, yeah, that was my lineage, but look at my family, like me and Mary and Nate and Nile and Naomi. We're good, though. Jesus can't even say that. He says, not only is my, my whole lineage jacked up, but when you look at my mom and my dad, they're jacked up, too. People think that she cheated. People think that he's just dealing with it. He's not a real man. I'm an illegitimate child. Nobody knows who my real father is. And that's how the king comes. See, it doesn't matter what the world says or what the circumstances of, of Jesus' introduction is into your family. It's the introduction of Jesus into your family, into your marriage, into your individual life that makes it holy. Think about this for a second. It doesn't matter what everybody says about Mary and Joseph. The fact that Jesus was introduced into that family, they become a holy family. It doesn't matter what people say about you and your marriage and your kids. If Jesus is introduced to it, you become a holy family. It becomes a holy marriage. It's the introduction of Jesus that makes it holy. That's the making of a holy family. You don't need everything else. You don't need royalty. You don't need a crown. You don't need everybody to acknowledge who you are and what you've been through. You don't need to uh, right every wrong. You don't have to fix everything that's bad in your lineage or bad in your own household right now. All that has to happen is Jesus needs to be introduced and you become a holy family. Don't consult with the world. Consult with the royal family. When you're going through something, don't ask your friends. Don't post about it. Don't ask a psychiatrist. Don't ask a counselor. Go to the royals. <laughs> Jesus, what do I do here? God, what did you do when, when, when uh, Sarah shows up pregnant when she's 99 years old? Oh, I just told her to go and spend some time alone away from everybody else so that she can really begin to have that pregnancy and her and Abraham can get where they need to be and Ishmael could be put off to the side and Hagar could be put off to the side. I, I had something for them. Well, what about me, Lord? I'm royal now too. What do you have for us? What do you have for us? How do we deal with these situations and circumstances as they arrive? The making of a holy family. Last one this morning. Number one, guilty by association. Number two, the making of a holy family. And I hope that really hits home for you because I feel like God wants to make you a holy family. But he does it in a way that's not the way that you might think. Last one is about a kingdom like no other. A kingdom like no other. I think we've already seen that Jesus is a king like no other. But along with that, we should have this expectancy of a kingdom like no other. Does that make sense? See, we can all say that he's a king like no other king. He's not like our president. He's not like the king of wherever you want to call. But we expect the kingdom to kind of be like the other kingdoms that we're used to. If he's a king like no other, we should have a kingdom like no other. Matthew chapter 1, the last uh, five verses, six verses, 21 through 25, five verses. It says, speaking of Mary, she will bring forth a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is another gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14. So, so here's John, and he's writing down what, what, what he saw, what he experienced. He said, man, the word became flesh. The one that said, let there be light, and there was light. The one that brought everything into existence. He came into flesh like us, and we saw him. We sang another song today. It says, uh, I've seen what can't be unseen. Ray, can you put that up there so I can remember exactly what the, the lyrics are? I was like, Carmelo, I just started crying. <laughs> I've seen what can't be unseen. Can you hear John kind of saying that? Holy is the Lord revealed for my eyes, and my, my burning heart can scarcely take it in as I behold your beauty with, un, with unworthy eyes. Next one. Now I know that I've seen the glory that cannot be unseen. I am changed and changing, changing still as I look upon the Lord and pray. Leave that there. Now listen to John chapter 1, verse 14. Again, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I've seen what can't be unseen. <laughs> and because I've seen it, I'm changed and I'm changing still. This is kingdom is like no other kingdom. This king is like no other king. If you've ever seen him, that'll bring you to tears. I can't believe I've seen what can't be unseen. And I'm being changed by it. I was already changed and I'm changing still. So here's what I want to look at. This contrast between Mary and Joseph and what they're going through as individuals and at the same time what God is doing in the kingdom. All right? Mary and Joseph are trying to figure out how do we keep this relationship going? How do we cross the line from being engaged to getting married? How do we, how do we prove that we're not in sin? How do we bring this child into the world and actually parent it? How do we, how do, we do any of this stuff? But at the same time, God is saying, I am bringing the king into the world. And I am inaugurating a kingdom that's universal. It's worldwide. I think this happens to us in our lives a lot of times. Sometimes we get so focused on our relationship with the king that we forget about the kingdom. As you're walking out your walk with Jesus, don't forget that he's the king of all. What does that mean? Imagine you go to see the president, you get an invitation to the White House and you show up there tomorrow. And you sit down with the president and you say, hey, listen, this is what's going on in my neighborhood. This is what's going on in, on my street and the potholes. This is what's going on in my house with my, with my husband and our relationship and how hard we have to work to. This is what's going on with my kids and what they're up against in the schools. 
This is what's going on with me emotionally and my doctors and you go through all this stuff and then you leave, right? And then you're sitting at home and you're waiting for the president to say, hey, I heard your concerns and I know what you're going through and you're waiting for him to tell you, here's what I plan to do about your situation and your circumstance, right? So you flip on the news and the next thing you know, the president is at a summit with North Korea. And then the president is having this meeting with Putin, the president of Russia. And then the president is talking about hunger in the United States. And then the president is talking about homelessness in the United States. And then what happens to you is you begin to say, I forgot that there's other things that the president is concerned with. You know that that's how our relationship is with Jesus a lot? He's king, but we want him just to be king of our lives and we're not concerned with the kingdom. Jesus is king of all. He's Lord of all. He, he's concerned with the whole planet, not just me and not just you and not just your block and your street and your marriage and your kids. It's a kingdom like no other kingdom. When you look at this story, this last part of it in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1, and it's talking about this king coming into the world. I think there's a lot of things that we can focus on. But what I want to do, the same way that I think that our president has a, a laundry list of things that are important, and there's probably one that's probably more important than others, it's the same thing with, with the Lord and with God. There's a lot of things that are important to him, but some things are more important than others. Somebody say amen. amen. Sorry if you don't say amen. <laughs> I'm sure you can find somewhere else where they'll tell you that you're the most important thing. We're just going to read the scriptures the way that they are written. This is what verse 21 says about our king in this kingdom. Speaking of Mary, it says, She'll bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The reason number three is a kingdom like no other is because our king, what he came to do is to save his people from their sins. That's his primary focus. That's his primary goal. Our happiness is not number one. Our families is not number one. Our financial peace is not number one. Our comfort within our churches is not number one. Our king did not come to make our lives better. He came to save us from our sins. Yes. And when you know what the king is coming to do and what the kingdom has been established for, you'll be a much better citizen of that kingdom. Let that sink in for a second. It's one thing to come to the president and ask him to do all these things for you, but after you see what else he has going on, it would be normal and natural, hopefully, for us to say, hey, Mr. President, it's not that I don't still care about the things that I talk to you about, but I recognize that you have some other things going on. <laughs> I'm at least willing to wait. What about Jesus and the kingdom of heaven? Have any of us gone to the king and said, hey, Father God, hey, Jesus, I recognize that you have some other things going on. I'm willing to wait. Yes, I still want my family to be blessed. Yes, I still want some financial stability and peace. Yes, I want uh, my marriage to be strong and my kids to be healthy. Yes, I want a full church and friends and fa I want all that stuff, Lord, but I recognize that that's not priority number one for you. 
and I'm willing to wait. Amen. Even if I don't get it. I see, Lord, that your kingdom is about saving people from their sins. And imagine saying this, Lord, while I'm waiting, I'd love to be used to help see people be saved from their sins. You see the kingdom? Or is he just your personal king and savior? See, there's things that we have to take into context, church, because he is a personal God. He does love you. He does care about your issues and your concerns. But when you turn him into just that, right? He's like an app on your phone that just gives you what you want, when you want it, and how you want it, and it's only concerned with you. You've, you've, you've programmed it to be just for you. That's not the king that we serve, and that's not the kingdom we're a part of. How much are we willing to go without so that others can have? This kind of king and kingdom is like no other. When Jesus comes onto the scene, Romans and Greeks are the world powers. They have Greek mythology, all the stuff that you guys have heard about in the movies we watch, Perseus this, right, and Zeus that. They have all these gods, right, because they recognize there's Poseidon, the god of the water and the ocean. There's Zeus, the god of thunder. They have all these things, but there's never been a god that says, hey, I came to be God with my people. There's never been a God that says, I'm going to resurrect. Even the, the stories about resurrection during the time when Jesus came, nobody was ever resurrected with the body because the body was seen as evil. So if somebody was resurrected, they were a spirit or they went into be some kind of like tree or some kind of nature. Our God and our king, our kingdom is like no other. He says, I'm going to resurrect and I'm going to have a body because the body isn't evil. Sin is evil. And that's why I'm coming to deal with sin, to save people from sin. I'm going to be God with you like no other. This promised king and this king that comes to save his people from their sins, that's what we come to worship. That's who we come to learn about. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, this is the last scripture. It says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Isaiah, why don't you come? This is what <laughs> the king and the cross and the kingdom is about. Matthew chapter 1 today is about the inauguration, the beginning of uh, what they had been waiting 400 years of silence for. Nobody has heard from God for 400 years. The last prophetic words were 400 years before that. And then all of a sudden, this star appears. And they begin to say, <laughs> the time is now. He's here. Let's go pursue him. How is the king going to show up? Is he going to be at the palace? No, he's going to be in a manger. <laughs> Is he going to be to like the perfect family and the perfect lineage? No, he's going to be to a bunch of jacked up people and a struggling young couple. Is he going to come and deliver us from the Romans and from the Greeks? And, and is he going to be a conquering king? Is he going to be like David that had all these victories and we're going to sing, he slayed 10,000. No, he's actually going to go and die. <laughs> we're still going to be in bondage after he's come and gone. But he's a wonderful king. I thank God that he's willing to be guilty by association with me. I thank God that 
He makes families holy. He makes individuals holy. And I thank God that he's a king and it's a kingdom like no other. He came to save us of our sins and that's what matters most. When we come into this place, when we go throughout our day, we all have needs, we all have wants and desires. But I think it would be wonderful if we wanted what he wanted more than we want what we want. Why don't you guys stand with me? Just a quick prayer this morning for everybody who's in here. I want you to think about the needs that you came in with. I want you to think about the prayer requests that you've been lifting up. I want you to think about the things that you're hoping God will fix and change and transform. The broken things that need to be uh, healed. The strained relationships that need to be brought together. The forgiveness that needs to transpire between you and others. Think about all those things. What you want in your home, what you want at work, what you want in your education, your school. All those things. And then for just a moment, I want you to hear the voice of the Lord. And he just has a simple question. He just wants to ask you, he wants to ask me, if there's somebody here that has not been forgiven of their sins, are you more concerned with that than you are with those other issues and requests? And we've got to be honest this morning. There may be somebody in this place that doesn't know that they can be forgiven, doesn't know that the Rahab can go away, that the Tamar can go away, that David the adulterer can go away. They haven't come to know that they can be forgiven for everything and that God wants to associate with them. He doesn't want them to be fixed and to be, to be looked at better. He wants to come right where they are this morning and say, I love you anyway. I'll forgive you and I'll change you. Is that a priority for the rest of us? Is it worth waiting another week, another month, another year, another five years before we get the rest of our prayers answered to have this person's prayers answered today for what matters most, their salvation, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that Jesus came as a king to forgive us of our sins. Lord, use this morning, use this message, use this ser series to realign, realign our priorities, our allegiances, Lord God, our willingness. This song right now says, you won't relent until you have it all. Begin to pray for those that haven't accepted Jesus. Begin to pray right now for those that don't know they can be forgiven, but they need to hear. Begin to prepare to rejoice when they do. To remember not only your walk with the king, but the greater kingdom and God's priorities. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here, and maybe you've never heard the gospel presented this way, but this is the truth of the gospel. Jesus came to forgive people of their sins. That is number one. That's all that matters. Everything else is secondary. It happens for some. It doesn't happen for others. Some lives get way better. Some lives are still a struggle. But forgiveness of sins is all that matters. Jesus hung on the cross. There was a man that lived his whole life in sin. And that day, that moment, he said, Lord, be Lord. Remember me when you enter into that kingdom. 
The kingdom that was inaugurated 33 years ago when you were born to Mary and Joseph, we know that you're about to go back into that kingdom. He understood it for some reason. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he forgave him of his sins. It's a simple decision just like that. It's crazy, but it's that simple. If you're here, nobody's looking around. It's between you and God. But if that's you, and you want to be saved, you want to, you want to be forgiven, you want to start over, could you raise your hand so I could see you? Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Anybody? Right where you are, just raise your hand this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Mm. Lord, as we receive communion this morning, as we worship you, we just ask that you would help us to see you as the king that you are. We ask that you would help us to really see the kingdom and what your goals are, what your priority, priorities are, what it is that you're actually doing, Lord God. We thank you that we matter and our issues matter, Lord God, but we want your issues to matter. We want to come to you not only with our supplication and our request, but we want to come to you and hear you tell us this is what you're doing in our homes. This is what you're doing in our church. This is what you're doing in our community. This is what you're doing in our nation. This is what you're doing in the world. You are a king. We want our priorities to be aligned with yours, Lord God. There are no political parties with you. There is no divisiveness, Lord God. We are committed to your plan. We are committed to your purposes. We just need to see them, Lord God. Help us through this series. Let this time of communion, you said to do this in remembrance of you when we gather, Lord. As we receive communion, we remember you and what you've done for us. And we remember the kingdom that we're a part of, Lord God. We're reminded, Lord, as we take this bread and this juice, not only that we are associated with you, but that you are not ashamed to be associated with us. We love you this morning. We thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for another chance to worship you, Lord God. Meet us here in this place. We love you and thank you in the name of Jesus. You guys are released. You can receive communion. I was nowhere you came to my rescue. From the grave I've been raised. When I needed a savior to save me. Jesus, you made a way. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.